Hello, and welcome to What's Next. I'm Joel Krogman. Today on the show is my conversation with Ricky Staub. Ricky is a film director, a writer, and he runs Neighborhood Film Co., a production company that employs and mentors the formerly incarcerated. Uh, And for those of you who live in the United States, he has a movie that you can watch on Netflix right now called Concrete Cowboy. And I recommend that you do. It's really good. You might even want to watch it before you listen to this conversation. It's a it's a really great movie starring Idris Elba. Uh, I was really nervous leading up to my conversation with Ricky. Um, I'm nervous for all of these chats, but Ricky is someone who I've reached out to in the past, and I've asked him for advice about filmmaking and various other things, and he's always been more than willing to talk with me and share his share his wisdom and his perspective on things. But I think just knowing that we were going to have a conversation that was going to be recorded for the purpose of sharing it kind of messed with my head a bit. Like I don't want to perform. I want the conversations to be natural, but I feel like I kind of have to a little bit. And I do edit these conversations. But honestly, I, it's mostly I'm just editing myself because as I'm working on these Sometimes I find that my words come out so jumbled, I can't even tell what question I was trying to ask. So I'm really trying to find the line between real so I can grow versus wanting to make sure these conversations make sense and also wanting to come across a little smarter than I would otherwise normally be (laughs) sounding. But that's kind of why I'm doing this in the first place, this podcast, trying to face some of my insecurities and really trying to grow and the way that I speak is a big one because because people have said to me that my voice has a white noise quality to it (laughs) there's really no way to spin that so it feels so it can feel good but since starting the podcast I've actually found a few things I sort of like about my voice so that's good right I don't hate listening to it which I think is a positive growth step um so yeah, I guess doing this podcast is a little like exercising. It it hurts a bit and there's a lot of resistance inside of me to do it, but as I get in better and better shape, it feels better and better too. Even though it still hurts, uh there's a bit of a high that comes with it. All that to say, I'm I'm really glad that I stuck it out because I had a really good talk with Ricky and I've been looking forward to sharing this conversation with you. So please enjoy my talk with Ricky Stubb. I don't know if you can hear that. No, I can't. Okay, good. How's the mic? Sound? Yeah, sound, sounds great. How's it going, man? Good, good. Are you uh, are you uh, in your office? Yeah, this is our uh, my office in uh, Ventura. Okay. Uh, where are you in the world? My wife and I and our family just moved from Chicago to uh, the St. Louis area. Nice. What uh, prompted you to go there? My wife is uh, finishing up her grad program, so we we oh, okay. yeah we moved here for that. It was a really good program that offered like a uh, full scholarship. Nice. She was at SAIC before, and it was exorbitantly expensive. And <laughs> we were just like, when you're spending like the price of a house on education, it's like. It makes a lot of things feel really far away. <laughs> so oh, I'm sure. And then yeah. recouping that cost later. Exactly. Sure exactly. Well. 
Well, thanks for doing this. No, no worries, man. Of course. You're uh, you're busy these days, huh? <laughs> yeah, it's good though. I'm also, you know, I've married, I have two kids, two boys, so it's you like do life is full. Yeah. What? How old are your two boys? I have two as well. Uh, six and three. Oh no way! Okay. How about you? Nine and five. My my oldest just turned nine uh, on Saturday, so. Nice. It's crazy, huh? Young kids. <laughs> it is. <clears throat> I love it. I mean, it's just like uh, I want to be a great dad. So it means I'm like just want to like be into everything with them. And my six year old's playing baseball. So it's like I'm, you know, doing that. And it's just it's makes for a very full existence. Yeah. Are you um, <laughs> are you coaching? Or are you spectating at this point? No, I mean, uh, it's very like our coach is awesome and she has parents get out there a lot. So I definitely would. I think next year I'll probably like assistant coach. That's cool. I love the, it's fun. I didn't, I mean, I played baseball probably till middle school. So I wouldn't say I'm like, a, I know what I'm doing, but okay. at, that, at that age, I mean, come on, I know how to hit and catch. So yeah, that's the important part. It's yeah. really like about the social stuff. Yeah. My, my oldest son kind of start. he, he just started, um, soccer too and it's yeah it's a lot, a lot less about the uh quality of the sport and much more about growing in some of those emotional social skills yeah. <laughs> well i definitely i feel like baseball has like as my son said my six-year-old he said you know soccer doesn't have any rules because <laughs> he yeah. just thinks it's just running around but right a lot more growth opportunity in baseball just the uh, concept that they could strike out and the pressure right can yeah see it you know it's all on you yeah yeah it's good though i like cool it. all right well um from the outside from my experience following along what i have seen of of your work and what you've been up to the, the little bit that we've interacted in the past you've been on a pretty cool journey and in a lot of ways you're doing all the things that i would want to do you're a film director you're a writer you're running a production company you're a dad of two boys, as I am, and yeah. trying to make that like a central part of your life, and really have have your kids know that they matter. And absolutely, and you know, on t on top of all that as well, you're really made a significant effort to be mission driven in what you do, making space for people who might otherwise be forgotten in the work that you're doing, which I think is awesome. But on even even above all of that, what really stands out to me is this way that you seem to approach your work, which seems to come out of this sense of self that you have, this belief that what you're doing matters and that you can, that you have a role to play. And so I'd really love to explore that a bit. Yeah. Talk a little bit about where that comes from for you and how you view it in, as you reflect on it for yourself, especially as you think too about what you pass on to your kids. And what I thought would be cool is just to kind of go back to, to the beginning what was childhood like for you in terms of shaping who you've chosen to become now? Yeah. Uh, well, I was born uh, in the Chicago area. But oh, I you were? around a lot. Yeah, I was. Uh, West, well, yeah. I don't know what suburb it was. I moved around a lot. Uh, okay. But ended up landing in the West suburbs mm. in the middle school, high school time. Okay. Uh, but before that, I moved around a lot. My dad was in the hotel business, still is. Uh, so we would move quite a bit growing up, up and down the East Coast. So I lived in Maryland, outside of Philly, Pittsburgh, Delaware. Cool. Um, moved quite a bit when I was younger. So he would, did he manage hotels or what did he? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's what he does still. 
So did you spend a lot of time <laughs> running around? Yeah, hotels? At, one, at one point I lived in a hotel. Yeah. Wow. Uh, <laughs> so that there's some fun fun memories there for sure. I bet you probably saw some crazy stuff. <laughs> well, I created crazy stuff. We were okay. I, me and one of my sisters would run around like we owned the place. So I'm yeah. sure we made my dad's life terrible. <laughs> um, but yeah, we. Uh, Moved around a lot. I don't know how much that played into my upbringing. I'm sure it did at some degree. Yeah. In terms of being with new people, new places. You know, my parents divorced when I was 10, okay. which then sent us back to Chicago area. And that's where I remained from there. Did you live with your mom or with your dad? Yeah, I lived with my mom. Okay. So, uh, but my parents have maintained a pretty great relationship uh, since the divorce. Uh, so that was never really, I don't know, like a division point for me and my siblings. Um, okay, you know, I have I have five sisters and a brother. Oh I wow, say we're like we're like a dysfunctional Brady bunch, you know, <laughs> but we all what, love each other. So. Where are you in the order of of? Uh, I'm right in the middle. Okay, yeah. wow, wow, that's yeah. That's so a lot I, of I have a, I have a brother that's 11 years older and a sister that's 10 years older, all the way down to a sister that's 15 years younger. Okay. So, Really how spans. old are you? How old are you now? I'm 39. 39. Okay, so yeah, wow, that's a that is a range, dude. <laughs> yeah, it was fun though. I have, yeah, uh, I'm I have sure. really good relationships with my siblings. So there was there was seven kids living in a hotel at one point. No, 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 no. It was, oh, okay. it, was it was just because of the age gaps. It was different. Yeah, you yeah. Know, my just in terms of. Uh, where everyone was living at the time. You know, okay. We weren't always, always in the same house together at the same yeah, time. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, yeah, that would have been too much. That would have been chaos. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. Okay. That's cool. So you, how long were you in Chicago for then? Oh man. What's the math there? I don't know. I moved there in, shoot, what a test here. I don't know. I want to say fifth grade till I threw high school. Okay. So, uh, eight years, something like that, eight or nine years, probably. Did you, um, out of high school, you went to college or? Yeah. So then out of high school, I went to school in California, I went to this small liberal arts school called Azusa Pacific. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, out near in Pasadena. And then basically stayed in California after that. Oh, you did? I think I went home once. Yeah. Okay. Over the summer. And then after that, I, I never looked back. I love it out here. Well, the only time I ever came back east was then when I started my company. I started it in Philadelphia, of all places. Yeah. Okay. And so, what what brought you to Azusa Pacific specifically? That school? Were you were you already interested in filmmaking at that point, or? No, I didn't even study film there. I okay. uh, I was purely interested in it because a good friend of mine was going to visit for his spring for our spring break my senior year of high school okay <laughs> so i decided to go to, i just wanted to go to california and literally while i was there uh, or just before i don't remember details are hazy i applied to go because i was like this is incredible and then i got in the sunshine man i mean it was it was a very yeah i wasn't like a scholarly thought out plan <laughs> okay <just like> california <laughs> essentially Right. So how did film become an interest for you? Yeah. So late in high school, I actually, um, well, you know, I've always, I'd say I'd always have an interest in film. I legitimately wrote my first script when I was 10 years old, like a full out 
script. Really? On, I remember it was a computer my dad got from his hotel that I don't even know how it actually worked, but I remember it was black and yellow, like a DOS type program. And <laughs> I had an aunt or I have an aunt that was in the industry and she would send me scripts. Okay. So I would mock what they looked like. And I remember I wrote a script. Wow. But then it, it was like a fading interest as a child. And then as I got into middle school, high school, I just played sports, which was a kid. I actually got hurt my sophomore, junior year of high school playing football. Um, and I couldn't play that season. And it was my older sister who randomly called me and was like, I know you've always had an interest in film and arts. And there was this acting class down in the city in Chicago. Mm -hmm. She's like, I think you should do it. I'll pay for it. And so I said, yes, I was like, sure. Uh, wow. That's pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah. I I mean, I looked up to my sister a lot. I still do. Mm. So her advice, anything is gold in my mind. Yeah. Um, and it gave me an excuse. I'd take the train into the city and I did this acting class. I'd never didn't know anything about it, but then I really liked it. Yep. Um, my high school that I went to had a pretty extensive, robust theater program. So I basically started, I auditioned for a musical. I actually got a part. I was like, okay, this is cool. Did that still played sports. And then out into college, I decided to study theater. I wanted to pursue that, but pretty quickly I realized I liked it. Um, but it was writing that I really fell in love with. So Mm. I started writing in college actually with a buddy of mine who's now my business partner and writing partner Okay. at the time. So after my freshman year of college, we were me and this buddy, his name's Dan. Yeah. We're living in living at the beach. We thought it'd be fun to write a script because that's what people <laughs> do in LA. I mean, it was like, we're going to drink beer and write yeah. stories about our upbringing. The best. <laughs> and about halfway through it, we were like, this is amazing. Like I want to do this as a living. Oh, really? Um, wow. Literally thought we were going to win an Oscar. We were so <laughs> ambitious. Matt and Ben. Yeah, exactly. We were Matt and Ben. So we, <laughs> we write this script, like totally redirect pretty much all my ambitions toward, I want to be a writer. Uh, same with Dan. Hmm. Uh, he was an English major, you know, I was a theater major. I still did okay. some theater stuff, but it was really the writing that I loved. And I started meeting with film students because I'm like, okay, who can make the things that I write? So I started yeah. writing short films um, with these students and friends of mine. Mm-hmm. And then it was near the end of college, I realized that I didn't like the idea of writing something and then having to wait for someone to make it. So I was mm-hmm. like, okay, well, what if I'll learn how to produce? So I just started volunteering to work on any film set anyone would let me on. Connected to your college or connected yeah, to... Yeah, I mean, literally, yeah, professors, friends I knew. I mean, I like any grunt job, if you could get me on a set, I said yes. I didn't yeah. care if I got paid. So I did that. And then uh, at this point, I've the acting part of me is gone. I, it was... Uh, I did it yeah. very, very briefly. I just... I didn't really love it. But you finished. you finished the theater program? Yeah, I mean, at that point, it was just too expensive to change. Yeah, <laughs> but <laughs> you you were that. you were focused on acting in the in the theater program. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But outside of the, and I will say, fast forwarding as a as a director, I would say those acting classes I would I think are probably 
some of the most beneficial experiences I've had as a director. Mm. I always tell anyone that wants to become a director, go take acting classes because yeah, it will completely change how you view the experience from the other side and mm. give you new language on how to speak to actors to actually yeah. get the performance that you want. That's cool. So that, that uh, I'm very grateful for that experience. And I had some wonderful professors, you know, one that I still stay in touch with. I think that was just part of what was great about that school is the level of investment they put in their students. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I graduate and then I'm just a PA production assistant on pretty much whatever anyone will let me be on. And then okay. <laughs> I eventually, I landed a job working for this producer named Sam Mercer, right? who um, at that point had done, you know, M. Night Shyamalan's first six or seven films. He'd worked with Sam Mendes, just huge directors. Yeah. Um, I ended up working for him for four or five years, and he's the one that actually took me to Philadelphia. I worked on this movie, The Last Airbender, okay. where I moved and lived in philly for two and a half years on one movie wow so this is my like early mid-20s but that was pretty much a master class in how to make films by the right. time i finished working for sam i was coordinating second units on airbender and you know an aerial unit in thailand and new zealand and i was fully like learning how to produce at the highest level and yeah a lot of credit to him for giving me the skill sets I have now and even the confidence to run a production company because I saw how he, how he did it. Yeah. Kind of doing it um, at the highest level there is yeah. when you're doing that. So even then I wasn't directing, not, it wasn't until I, I started my, uh, production company, which I still have a uh, neighborhood film company. Mm -hmm. That was in 2011. Were, were you and Dan writing scripts together this whole time? Oh, yeah. So this whole time, Dan and I are writing scripts that literally no one reads. <laughs> um, yeah. Were you and we trying were writing, to? Oh, yeah, yeah. We, you know, we would submit it to like the Nickel Fellowship and festivals yeah. and had very, very minimal, moderate success. Uh, but it was essentially an addiction. Like I can't describe it any other way. We, <laughs> it didn't matter to us. There was the script itself was a piece of poetry and a painting that we inherently enjoyed by ourselves and mm. felt like this is a completed piece of art yeah for us even you know we had maybe our girlfriends now wives read them and <laughs> friends you know but by any stretch it was mostly just something that we never stopped believing we had the capacity to do at a professional level yeah uh, but but we enjoyed it you know and still do um but the whole time, even when we were separated, even before Zoom was a thing, we would actually get on Skype every um, Saturday morning and write all day together over Skype. And during the week, we would write, do our own writing that we would share with each other. I mean, it was our life revolved around it in every capacity. How, how did that work? Like you, you would kind of work during the week on different sections and then you'd talk those sections out on Skype or how did that dynamic work between the two of you? Yeah, so essentially still work exactly the same we you know come up with an idea together yeah we plot out the whole movie every beat of it every scene of it methodically to the point where it's literally in a spreadsheet um and then at that time and it's not totally that much different now at that time we would say okay let's 
we're each going to write the, let's say we're just starting out. We'll each write the first three scenes. And so we would go that whole week. We would spend independently writing our own versions of the first three scenes of the script. And then on Saturday we would meld them together. So we would start the morning out. It was like Christmas to me. I'd wake up and get to read (laughs) what Dan wrote. Um, This is how nerdy we are that like receiving new writing from Dan to me was a Christmas gift. That's awesome. And it's just so exciting to see how did he interpret what we were going to put together. And you guys respected, had this like mutual respect of each other's craft and point of view. Yes. I only think it works because, and I hope Dan would say the same, that I, I think that Dan (laughs) is a better writer. Like I, so if he's written something at my immediate, my, my going into it is it's probably the right direction. Hmm. So if I feel averse to it, or I don't feel like it's right. I can trust that gut because I'm not trying to jockey for my writing, so to speak, to be the winner. Yeah. It really is truly like what makes this script the best. Cause huh. ultimately we both get credit for it in the end anyway. So who right, cares? right. Right. Um, and I, I feel like it's been a superpower of ours cause you essentially get to, I mean, Dan and I could and have written our own stuff coming together and just taking the best pieces. And sometimes it's like a full blending. Sometimes it's like, dude, you nailed this. This we're totally going to build off yours. Or sometimes it's even mine could be total trash, but there's like one or two lines that are just bangers that are like, oh man, if we use that part in yours, it would be great. So you're just getting the best of the best. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So then we spend the day basically. And sometimes we both, they're both trash and we're like, okay, we got the bad (laughs) stuff out. Yeah. What did we learn here that it needs to be? Why didn't these work? And then the second layer that once we once I started or once we started making our writing is we started going, am I excited to wake up to film this scene? Yeah, sure. And if there was part of it or any part of the scene that felt boring or not exciting to film, I was like, it's probably going to be boring to watch if I don't want to get excited yep. to film it. So yeah. <laughs> Why, what's missing here? What energy? Why is this not propelling the story forward hard enough? Yeah. So. Yeah. Writing is, uh, um, <laughs> requires some of the most discipline. I mean, obviously you had like an intense passion for it, but I feel like there's a, uh, there's a certain sense of inherent value or, or belief in what you're doing that it feels exciting. It feels like it matters. It feels important. Mm-hmm. there's a sense of fulfillment that comes comes from it. Yeah. Is that something that you felt was new for you in your life? Or did you get that through sports? Did you get that kind of through other things? And this sort of just became the new way that you found who you were and the things that you did? Uh, I would say it was unique to writing. And it wasn't the only outlet that I used writing. I think mm-hmm. that's why it became a natural, even before that, you know, when I was my junior senior year, I started journaling and I literally have not stopped since I have over 20. It's like a timeline of my life. Yeah. Um, Just like every morning you journal or what is your, yeah, there'd be gaps in there, but it was just a way for me to express, uh, specifically there it's, it's a dialogue, a prayer with God for me, Mm, you know, mm, a faith that I have. Um, and it was a way for me to process, through a lot of what was happening in my life, both good and bad. Yeah. Um, and writing, and that was all handwriting and journals. 
Um, and I feel like writing in the script format to me is another way to express the way and perspective that I digest the world um, through these yeah. characters and circumstances, even though if it's any type of fictionalized world or story, I'm constantly taking how I'm experiencing the world and pouring it into that language that I have uh, as an outlet. Yeah. Do you still have that script you wrote when you were 10? You know, I don't. My dad claims that it's somewhere and I really hope that he finds it <laughs> uh, because I would be so curious to read it. Yeah. I'm sure it's terrible, but... It'd be interesting to see if some of what you're talking about now is in that, like how you were processing totally. the world, you know, in what you were seeing around you. Yeah. Because yeah. because like, even as a 10-year-old, like my, my son's nine, he's he loves art and he's getting into writing his own stories and, you know, st stuff like that. But it's for a 10 year old to, <laughs> to write a feature length script is pretty monumental. There's like a yeah. degree of focus and determination and uh, drive that is, I think, uh, pretty rare for a kid of that age. Yeah. It's definitely now that I look back, writing was, it almost feels now that I have two boys, I could, you know, I see what they're diving into. I'm like, is this a pattern that you're going to keep well yeah. into your thirties? You know, right. I, I, my mom actually just found a collection of short stories I wrote and illustrated as a 10 year old that, huh. you know, 25 pages long. Like, and I was reading some of them to my wife and my boys and my wife was like, I don't even know if I could write this well now. <laughs> I mean, there was like pretty like, well-formed and completely fictional stories about like fictional worlds and what God knows what. Yeah. And others yeah. just like retellings of my first time hunting. And hmm, hmm. clearly I, that was a mode of a way that I expressed myself. Yeah. And it's a, what I think is so cool about that too, is it's just pure. It's not the, this ego driven thing. It's, it's so, so much more of a pure just for the love of doing it. And it, and that retained, I mean, I, I mean that when, before Dan and I got paid to write, we just loved the craft. It was just yeah. you know, having a completed, finished script that we adored and appreciated. And I could read and I could see the film. To me, that was, it was everything. Hmm. I didn't need other people's approval. I, I loved that we made that and then we would immediately start on a new one. Yeah. And so everything from the journey to the finishing you know, I, I think we retained that purity hmm. um, that I had when I was a little kid. You know? Yeah, yeah. So you were working for Sam Mercer. You moved to Philadelphia for a two and a half years. And then, yeah. then what happened? <laughs> so then, yeah. Then, yeah, I had some pretty big, I would say, like personal revelations, faith experiences personally that drove me to ask questions, you know, like, why am I alive? What am I doing here at a very early age? Yeah. In a lot of ways, I feel it was a gift. Mm. You know, what is the purpose of my time? You know, I had achieved, I wasn't a working writer, but I was working on, you know, a hundred, $200 million movie. Yeah. It's the big. highest level with a boss that, you know, super demanding, but obviously putting a lot of faith and trust in me. And I was on the path to success and pretty much living a dream I had forever. And yet I was finding myself not satisfied as I looked at, you know, as this part of my life, my faith in God grew, 
I started to ask questions of like, why are they seemingly in two different buckets? And not to make this like a faith discussion in its entirety, but it's <laughs> no, let's go. impossible to talk about the changes I made in my life without yeah, of course. Trying to articulate whether you think it's bananas or not, doesn't matter. <laughs> this is what I believed. Yeah. Is that my life seemingly didn't look or feel any different than anyone else who didn't have a faith. And I realized that I didn't really, I didn't, I said I believed in certain things that I actually didn't believe because I didn't live out of those things that I claimed. Mm. And so it was the first time in my life in Philly where I essentially started to be like, okay, if, if I think I believe there's a God, what does that God say about how I should be living? Yeah. Not just what happens when I die. Mm -hmm. And it was the first time where I really took a look at the Bible as not an artifact or a glossed over historical text. I was like, if this was actually God leaving words for us on how to live, what would that actually mean for me? Yeah. And I realized reading that book that, the way churches exist was quite contrary to how people in the Bible actually lived. Mm -hmm. Like there was, there was a narrative happening of what people say Christ was like. And then, then there was a narrative of who Christ actually said he was like. Mm -hmm. And it was very clear to me that Jesus came actually for the poor, for those who were disenfranchised from our society, those that we were breaking as a human race. And I was like, okay, even radically saying like, God is amongst those people. And so I started to go, okay, well, if God is real, I want to participate in that. Yeah. Or I want to just make clear that he's not real and just go about my life like I'm already doing. Yeah, sure. And it was an investigation of that of in this time where I was living in Philadelphia, I was out of my normal friend group away from college. Everything was changing in my life. And so I started spending time with people who were living on the streets and fast forward to a lot of those people are formerly incarcerated. Mm -hmm. I got really invested in them as friends. I mean, to the point where, you know, I was living in a house in the city. I would people that I was becoming friends with that were homeless. I was letting them stay in my home and like, it was just like truly becoming a part of my community, but yeah, it like radically changed the trajectory of my life. Yeah, sure. Given, um, Essentially, I wanted, I had this vision and I'll call it a vision because I remember I was just laying in my bed in Philadelphia and I had this concept of essentially everything I had in my life. I didn't, I didn't never made a resume. I never applied for a job. I got out of college or during college, I started working on sets. Everyone would just recommend me. I even got the job with Sam Mercer because of two people independently recommending me to him. Yeah. And within the meeting, I didn't even have a resume. He's like, all right, I want you to start Monday. And just completely changed my life. And here yeah, I was. Yeah. I didn't study this. I didn't fill out an application. Yeah, you got you kind of recognized the privilege that you had gotten. Yeah. Yeah. And so I my the concept that came to me is what if I could take someone who was formerly incarcerated, who didn't go to high school, who didn't have anything to put on a resume or an application, but what if I could train them in the skills that I had and make them so hireable that they would just get the job purely based on their skill set. Mm. Interesting. And nothing like that existed in way of like an actual company. Um, I became pretty quickly disenfranchised by nonprofits that seemed to promise a lot to these friends of mine, like resume building classes and things of the sort. But, and I talk about this a lot. I was like, I was always bothered because I, 
had a pretty confident view of myself and I just just be like, there's no way you're taking a job from me. Right. And I'm not some genius out there in the workforce. I'm just an educated, motivated, hard worker who doesn't have a prison sentence. Yeah. You mean like if the option for an employer is you versus them, you'll win every time kind of thing. Every time. Yeah. There's no way you're taking the job from me. Right. And that came out of a place of love where I was frustrated at the use of my time trying to pretend like them going to an interview skills class or a resume building workshop or a computer, any certificate you can get means anything. Yeah. So I was like, I wanted to create a company which essentially put them in my mind, it was a competitive company that just made incredible work that they were a part of because that's, you know, when people found out that I worked for Sam Mercer, they're constantly trying to hire me. Yeah, sure. And so I wanted to create an atmosphere where I trained someone in the way that Sam trained me. Hmm. Like he said to me when he hired me, your job is to be as good as me at my job so I can give you 40% of my workload. Right. <laughs> so I trained in the same capacity or my vision was for this anyway. So, yeah, but that's essentially, yeah. So I quit working for Sam to start neighborhood film company with a mission to hire adults returning home from incarceration. Okay. So just to go back, did did you grow up in a faith, like in a faith environment or how, when did that, um, become a, cause Azusa Pacific is a, is that, isn't that a Christian college? It is a Christian college. Yeah. Uh, the short answer is no. I had some of my family has variations of faith. Okay. <laughs> it's a mixed bag. I started going and I guess being welcomed into like a church community in high school through a group okay. of friends that I'm still close with. Okay. Um, but really none of that, it was essentially like I, I nothing about me changed. I just felt guilty for certain things I used to do and <laughs> continued to do. Like it's yeah. pretty much all that changed. Okay. And it wasn't, wasn't until after college when I was in Philly and I would tell people I was working with that I was a Christian, but I'm like, why do I tell people this? Like, I don't. Yeah. Like there's so much in my life that doesn't actually do anything with this so-called faith, you know? And so, so that was just a cognitive dissonance that existed in you until you had these experiences where you were forced to make a choice. You couldn't, you couldn't live in that dissonance anymore. No, it seemed worthless to me. Yeah. And I'll say that to people now that claim to have a faith, but don't live out of it. I'm like, why even bother? Yeah. Why put yourself through the headache of, especially nowadays, like, I know it's a little crazy now. Telling someone you're a Christian is a loaded concept because their view of what that even means. Like I can't even really use that term anymore. It's been so hijacked yeah. by absurd, radical people. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think that faith is meant to be learned in a knowledge sense. It is meant to be experienced. And unless you engage something to be experienced, you don't actually learn anything. Hmm. And so... When I watch a man I claim to believe in, Jesus say, do as I've done, and I don't do those things, you're learning nothing. You have cursory knowledge. It's like me having knowledge of an astronaut, means I'm ne- but I've never been to space. you know. And so I'm watching someone say, you can experience these things and do them even more than me, and we choose not to do it. And I was going, oh, screw that. If God is real, I want to know it. I want to experience it. And that's all I can say is that like ever since that time in Philly, my inner being has completely transformed. Hmm. Like I was never 
sometimes people look at me as like, I'm some like sacrificial altruistic person is not true. I have the worst thoughts yeah, sure. <laughs> about everyone, about the world, about myself. Hmm. The, the more that I understand the insatiable desire God has to love people, the larger the gap is in my own love that I see. It's incredible. Um, but it's intoxicating to be around people who are so vastly different than me and to, to be loved by them in a certain way, to be ministered to in that way. I think um, it's really hard to articulate. Yeah. It's all the things that love is too. It's frustrating. You know, it's not this kumbaya experience, you know, yeah. Entangling my life with people who are formerly incarcerated comes with a lot of heartache yeah, and a lot of frustration and pain. Uh, but yeah, so does being married. Yeah. And so does having children, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's just, it's the really, it's the nitty gritty of relationships and yeah, it's relationship. That's what changed, you know? Yeah. yeah. So do you sort of see that period of your life as when everything changed? Oh, totally. I, I became, it's, it was almost daunting and scary because I knew that my life I was going to, I was going to redirect my life off the path I wanted. Yeah. I felt almost enslaved to this new vision that I feel God gave me. It was like the longer I resisted doing it, the more it haunted me. Mm. Like I was having like visions of what the apprenticeship, which we call it now could look like. And I was actually scared because I knew what it was going to require of me to basically say goodbye <laughs> to my dream job and what I wanted to do versus what I felt like I was supposed to go do. Yeah. So how did you, how did you process that? How did you come to terms with or peace with the decision that you ultimately made? A lot of journaling, a lot of prayer, a lot of seeking, you know, wisdom and counsel, whether it was through books or people that I could meet that I felt were living out a certain life that seem to be in that same direction. Yeah. You know, I can think of some sit downs with people that were very influential to me. Hmm. Um, but it did, it was like this nagging feeling that the longer I, I, it's like, I knew a year before I made the decision, what I had to do, it was just coming to terms with and the bravery to actually say yes to it. Yeah. And like almost like a refusal of the call, like a storytelling principle. Yeah, sure. Until I ultimately, you know, when I, so I quit my job with Sam, this was in 2011, you know, I'm in my mid twenties saying, I'm going to go start a production company that hires people who are formerly incarcerated. And I've never even made a video, let alone run a company, <laughs> let alone like studied anything to do with anyone formerly incarcerated. But all I had was in Philly is where this vision came I had friends that would were willing to support it. And I had this woman, her name is Sister Mary Scullion. She's a nun that runs this nonprofit in Philadelphia called Project Home. Mm. Was one of the first people to basically tell me I wasn't crazy. Really? And she had felt the same things I felt. Yeah, I remember she invited me over to this kind of an apartment she lived in, in one of the shelters she ran. And I remember we drank a Coors Light together in her living room. Nice. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> If you can have a Coors Light with a nun. Actually, she had a glass of red wine. I had a Coors Light. But it came out of her fridge. <laughs> but it came out of her fridge. That's the most important part. <laughs> if you can have a beer with a nun, I highly suggest it. Huh. But yeah, I laid out the vision and she said, come live in one of our shelters. I'll put you up. Wait, 
you wanted to move in, you wanted to live in, like, can you talk a little bit more, more about that part of the vision? Well, part of it is I didn't understand what I was really trying, the problem I was really trying to solve. Oh, okay. And again, I can read books, I can go to class for it, but I feel like experience is the greatest teacher. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to know what these people suffered through. And it was part of her mentorship was that you should live in one of my shelters then. And all she said is, if you come and stay here, you can't leave for, you know, you got to commit. Not like I've, I don't live in the shelter anymore. Yeah. But you got to, you have to commit for a period of time. Yeah. Kind of thing. Don't come here for, you know, a month and then leave on me. So yeah. Yeah. I quit my job working for Sam. I remember we were in the middle of Snow White and the Huntsman, the movie in LA. It was like a out of a movie at a cushy, at a parking yeah. spot on Universal lot. It's like a dream come true. And I traded that in to drive across the country and move into a homeless shelter, which was terrifying. And wow. I suddenly had no job, was starting a company. And yeah, I mean, at that point, I was like, I'll probably go work at a coffee shop to make ends meet while I get this off the ground. Thankfully, we got one job really quickly that floated us a month and then another one. So was it just it was just you at first? Me and some friends from college that they were actual filmmakers. I was more of like an idea business guy. Okay, so you sort of like, you sort of ran it and then you brought other people yeah. in to help you execute the projects and stuff. To me, it was like, I, I saw how studios did. They have an idea, they have a project and then they find the filmmakers to do it. Yeah, so. well, that's kind of, that's what's on your website now, I think even, yeah. still, like that idea. I didn't realize this in the commercial space, how not normal it was to not have a roster of directors or... Right. I was getting away with something that wasn't orthodox, I guess, just the way I sold it. So, you know, sure. if you have an idea or if I have an idea, I'll find the best filmmaker for that idea yeah. versus having to manage starving artists that yep. probably just have to imagine just email me all the time. Like, where's Angry. my job? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've never had to do that. So, uh, but at that point I wasn't directing as I am now. When you told Sam you were leaving, what was his response? Oh, it was terrible. I was so sick to my stomach. Uh, he thought, I wish I could remember exactly what he said, but I do remember that he said, you're not quitting. And I was like, no, I am. I'm going to do this. And he's like, what do you need, more money? So he offered me like this huge raise. Oh, my God. <laughs> like, do you need a different title? Blah, blah, blah. And I had to really, really explain to him why I was doing this. And I remember him and the other producer were like, are you like joining a cult or something? I'm like, no, no. Yeah. You know, I was trying to explain like my heart around it. It wasn't like a, a well wishes in the beginning, but eventually once Sam realized I was serious, I remember very specifically, I was driving home one night and he called me and he said, I'm really sad that you're leaving, hmm. but I know you're going to be successful. And he, I mean, he came on to produce my first movie years later oh did he really yeah he produced concrete cowboy so oh wow how awesome is that uh, yeah Full circle. Which we can get to later but yeah he uh he never he never stopped believing in me legitimately what did that mean to you in that phone call when he called you and gave you that affirmation or that well at the time it meant a lot because then as his assistant we weren't 
close like we became later after I worked for him, you know, which can often happen. I see that happen with employees or apprentices. Once they mm. leave, I can have a little different dynamic with them because they're not, they don't work for me. Well, he was like, he became a mentor to you more in the years to come. Yeah. When uh, I would reach out to him periodically and stay in touch. And he was actually pretty instrumental when I went into making my first short film in terms of the cage. Yeah. The cage. Um, okay. Yeah, which when we first spoke, yeah, uh, he was pretty instrumental in just what keeping me laser focused on what the mission of that project should be in order to get me to a place where I could actually use it yeah. as a calling card to make a movie. So yeah, he stayed pretty instrumental as a mentor Yeah. after I left working for him. But there were years there where we didn't talk as I was getting the company up and running. Yeah. So what year was it that you started Neighborhood and then how many years were you kind of churning that out, figuring out what it was, building it before you kind of took that big step to do the cage? So we started the company in spring of 2011. Okay. And then we shot the cage in the fall of 2016. Okay. So it was five years. Um, and it was in that time that as we were building the company and we we're getting tons of great work and getting recognition and all the great things you want for a commercial production company, you know, yeah. Dan and I going back are writing this whole time in it. And at that point I started directing commercials. So I started really loving that. I started getting into photography. So this whole another side of my expression started coming out. Hmm. Dan and I, this was 2015. We're in the middle of this massive national campaign ad campaign for Xfinity. And I just said, you know, this is amazing. Like it's working. Our apprentices are thriving. Hmm. It is it, like the vision. It like works. Yeah. But in terms of our own personal ambition, I was like, no one is going to see a 30 second commercial, even if it's a Nike commercial and go, man, they should make movies. Yeah. I was like, I just don't see the bridge. Cause you, so you still, you still wanted to get to that point of absolutely writing features and having those be made into films. Absolutely. When you left the work with Sam to start this production company, Neighborhood, you were sort of giving up making feature films. Oh, I absolutely thought I'd never see it again. It was made me sick and I, I mean, bawled my eyes out multiple times. Like I was <laughs> forfeiting my childhood dream for essentially a new dream that I felt like the Lord gave me huh. um, to do this work. And I mean, I was convinced I was going to live in a homeless shelter like Sister Mary. And really, we were literally cutting spots out of a like essentially a dorm room in a homeless shelter. And clients then were like, we need to come over and do an edit session. And I'm like editing a commercial from a bunk bed in a homeless shelter. Like, this isn't sustainable <laughs> business. And so eventually we got an office and then, you know, eventually um, I started to feel weird, like living in a shelter and. It was running its course in terms of like, it's probably not a healthy dynamic that I'm here. And I'm like, it just became strange. And even Sister Mary counseled me. She's like, you know, stay in the neighborhood. So like I actually moved our office just close to one of the other shelters where I would teach a, a middle school film program for her. So that's yeah. just why, where we put our office just so I didn't have a car. So I was just biking everywhere. Okay. And then I just found like a cheap, you know, row home. I mean, we were living in like the deep hood, so everything was pretty cheap. <laughs> it's like, yeah, sure. So I was still around that community. Yeah. Uh, but things just continued to evolve. But yeah, I, by and large, all the 
friends and connections I had in the feature world were just a distant memory eventually years in. Wow. So that's, I think that's like something to really giving up that must have been painful. And like you said, you spent nights crying your eyes out. Oh, extremely painful. Yeah. And so there is a lot of beautiful gratification that it eventually did miraculously come back again, all those connections and relationships that I had in the feature space, particularly Sam, even going to that moment where I I asked him if I could meet up with him for lunch. And I explained to him that whole scenario. I was like, I'm making these commercials, but like, how do I make movies? Like what is, I've been writing these scripts. He knows this written scripts the whole time I worked for him. Yeah. He never read any of them, but he knew that I would get up. I would get to a Starbucks near Universal. I'd get there at 6 a.m. So I could write from 6 to 9 every morning. And then I'd work from, you know, 9 to 10 o'clock at night. And I remember when he found out I was up early because then he'd start calling me at like 6 or 7. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I know you're up, you know. Once I got more esteemed working for him, I'd be like, Sam, this is my time, all right? Yeah, when yeah. I get in the office, then you can pepper me. He's like, you know, what page are you on? But... <clears throat> Yeah, I had lunch with him and he started by going demystifying something for me because I think any of us that are commercial filmmakers look at, I call them Vimeo all-stars. Yeah. People that just win like every staff pick. Yeah. And he said, you know, who are your favorite commercial filmmakers? And at this time, when he's asking me this question, mind you, he's just finished producing a Steven Spielberg movie and is now running ILM, like a huge visual <laughs> effects. Company. So he's got, he's got uh, some perspective. Yes. And I said, I named these guys that you would, everyone would know. He's like, I want to make a point here. I've never heard of them and I never will. Yeah. Because they're not making films. No one cares that you make commercials. Hate to break it to you. Yeah. He said, if you want to be recognized as a feature filmmaker, you need to make a piece of work that shows people what you can do. He said, it needs to show off how you work with actors how you move the camera and that you can tell a story that can't, that is unforgettable. Mm. People have to watch that film and have to share it. Yeah. He's like, that's how it, that's how I find out about you. I'm sure people, everyone's path is different. So I'm just talking about my path and one man who gave me his advice. Yeah. Ultimately changed the direction of my life yet again. Yeah. And so at the time I was actually working on a version of the cage, but it was very lyrical and like three minutes long and essentially like a kid playing basketball with like magical realism, but didn't, wasn't going to say much. Yeah. It wasn't a story. No, I went back to the drawing board and I wrote, I was like, I'm why I'm going to write a script. Like I know how to do this. I've been doing this. Yeah. That's what you do. <laughs> and so I wrote this script and I wanted to make it with the people in the neighborhood that I lived with and around. And there's this guy named Andre Wright who runs this nonprofit, Give and Go, that I'm on the board of. And he would tell me these stories of these kids. You know, that's where the cage came from. It's birthed out of beers with a buddy of mine. Again, my experience and my relationships informing the things I say. Yeah. And so originally I was like, well, let's make this video this short film will also be a way to promote your nonprofit, which he actually still uses the cage in that format. He'll show it to kids in the neighborhood and be like, what are the lessons that are gleaned here? Huh? That's so cool. And in a lot of ways, that story, not in a lot of ways, in every way, it was a, it was a discovery, a conversation I was having with the world of, you know, there's a huge faith component, even overtly in it, but it was the whole thing is a story that I was going through where like, 
I believe that God is not surprised by how fucked up we are. Yeah. He's not surprised. It's part of his narrative for us is to redeem the darkest pieces of who we are. And that's what I wanted the cage to say, Hmm. but I masked it, you know, in basketball and vines and like (laughs) all this craziness, you know? Yeah. But that was really what I was trying to say. And so I put that all into it and yeah, I remember I, I may, I, so I, I have this, probably random lunch with Sam in his mind. And a year or more later, I came back and I said, Hey, I'd really, I want to show you the film I made. He did not know you went and made a film based off his advice. No. Wow. And so he was like, just send it over. And I was like, no, I really want to, I want to play it for you. And at this point I was pretty confident. Uh, it hadn't (laughs) even gone. I didn't even put it online yet, but you knew it was good, (laughs) but I knew, I knew I was sitting on something special. I, I could feel it. And so I, I remember I went to like a co-working space that like my buddy knew about. Anyway, I rented like a private room. I brought my entire desktop and speakers because I was like, I'm not going to risk some crappy tech. Yeah. And him and his wife came and it was just me. And I couldn't believe I convinced them to come (laughs) do this like private screening of my short film. It's obnoxious. (laughs) Anyway, I play it for him. I like sick to my stomach the whole time. He was Mm -hmm. like sitting kind of like behind me. I couldn't even look at him. But when the film was over, I looked back and his wife was just sobbing. So I was like, okay, that's good. At least landed (laughs) for her. Yeah. And Sam is a very stoic man. And he was just sitting there and he went and he nodded at his head and he's like, you should make a movie. Mm. That's what he said. Wow. And I just remember being like, oh, my God. And then we talked about it. He said, uh, well, what movie do you want to make? And I had at that time already known about what was called Ghetto Cowboy. It was a novel. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we had shot a commercial with these cowboys. And I knew about their story. And I'd met one in um, we speak every year in in front of these judges for recruiting for our company. And we met a cowboy. I said, well, I got this book that I know the rights are available, but I want to make a movie about it. Yeah. And I had a whole deck images, whatever. And he's like, tell me about it. So I like actually put it up on the screen and I was showing him images that I had made and photos I had. You were ready. Yeah. I was ready for the moment. Hmm. He said, well, let me, uh, he said, you, the rights are available. I said, yeah. He's like, okay, well I'll have my lawyer look into it. (laughs) And literally the next week they are available next month, him and his wife, get on the phone with me and the author, we get an option on the book. And I mean, it was just, then at that point I, I put the cage online. I ended up getting an agent out of it. Uh-huh. Once it's online, who's still my, well, now he's my manager, but he was my agent then. But yeah, it was, we had the rights to the book, everything locked up. And then Idris Elba saw the cage because my agent read the script we wrote on spec and it just kept yeah going from there. Yeah. It was like opportunity meeting all that those years of writing (laughs) yeah well it's so interesting too because so much of what your opportunity met with the drive for why you want to do it all in the first place and oh man i can't even imagine what that must have felt like that sense of uh not payoff that's not the right word but because that's not why you did it no but that initial vision you said yes to that Mm -hmm. that you weren't forgotten like those, those dreams still mattered. Yeah. You know, that's, uh, not to get like preachy, but it is, I would say I can only appreciate those moments once in reflection, mm. like when they're happening, Yeah, there's so much heartache and stri- striving and uncertainty that you don't realize you're in the moment 
Like you don't realize this gift is being given to you because you don't actually know if the movie's going to get made. You don't know if it's going right. to get finished. You don't you don't know all these things. Right. Um, but it has only been in the last couple of years that I've reflected, particularly with Dan, who yeah. has been on this journey with me for like 20 years. Going, you know what's incredible is like I certifiably gave up yeah. this childhood dream for what I felt and firmly believe was God saying, I have a bigger plan for you. Then you can't even, you don't even have the capacity to imagine, but just trust me. And now as a father Hmm. having little boys, I'm like, what more do I ever want to give them than the, their dreams? Then like, uh, I mean, I can literally tear up thinking about like my three-year-old loves trains. Yeah. Yeah. We gave him a train birthday party and you would think it was the (laughs) greatest moment in his life. Right. (laughs) Yes. And if I, this like, you know, whether you believe in sin or not, or just like not a good person can give good gifts to my children. I'm like, mm. imagine if there's a God that actually just wants to give good gifts to people, even though you don't deserve it. That's like, to me is like, what's so special is that, that my journey has been fraught with all kinds of frustration and pain and evilness I've even caused and perpetuated, but that like, I was still gifted this thing that I've had since I was 10. Yeah. I still get to do it, even though I thought I gave it up. To me, it is a very beautiful reflection that I, I I don't take lightly at all. Yeah. Yeah. Do you do you feel now that like where does your sense of satisfaction come from now from your work? Is it is it just in the doing it every day? Like the fact that you get to do it every day, you show up, you get to do it, or is it results when the film's done and it's released? Where, where's your focus at as you, as you do the work now? In a lot of ways, it's almost just as similar as when I didn't get paid. Cause, and maybe there's a gift in it. I never thought about it, but you know, when I finished concrete cowboy, we literally locked everything a week before the pandemic hit. Yeah. So I was sitting then on a finished film. We had screen tested it January, February before the pandemic it's scoring outrageous, like great scores. So, you know, our financiers and producers, everyone's like, dude, you are in for such a great ride. Hmm. This is the best part where everything you worked for is going to be appreciated. And then the pandemic hit and it was shelved. Yeah. Damn. And even it premiered at Toronto, but it was all virtual. Very grateful. You know, that's where Netflix bought it. Yeah. But I didn't get a premiere. I didn't get to like celebrate it with the community I made the film with. Mm. It was all taken away from me. Mm. And so I can't even say that I did it for that because I never got it. Right. You know, and it could be God knows how long till the next one I get to make even after having made one. Yeah. And so I still find myself enjoying just the satisfaction of because writing is primarily what we do now as far as like a living. Okay. Is enjoying the finished script, I can always, always appreciate that because not all of them are going going to get made. Yeah. You know, whether it's by me or another filmmaker and just finding satisfaction in things that aren't those things, you know, yeah. like accolades or relationship. It's like more of the relationships in the. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I, the things I appreciate now is that a, I get to write with my writing partner who I've loved writing with forever and we get to support our families this way and yeah, amazing. work on huge projects with like, I'm still like a little kid, like we're working on a project with a famous person <laughs> Yeah, getting to meet with them. It's just, this is crazy. This is crazy. Like, so you're going to pay me like me. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, but I appreciate the lifestyle it gives me, you know, that I am home a lot more now as a mm. writer. Um, when I was making commercials, I was just constantly traveling. And now I appreciate that I get to be integrated into my wife and my son's lives yeah. day to day, you know, I'm yeah. like being at every baseball practice and every game and every event in their life. And, you know, my son and I bike to school every day, mm. like these precious moments that I don't have to miss. Mm -hmm. That's actually what I'm now savoring and grateful for. Yeah. And it's interesting too, is that if you had not given up the dream, you might not be able to do these things now. <laughs> I, I almost guaranteed I probably wouldn't because, yeah. you know, I worked for a producer who was in the office every night till eight o'clock or nine o'clock yeah. with kids. And, and that's a very normal rhythm for, right. I'll say for a father. Uh, a lot of mothers though, in our industry, you're in the same boat. It's a sacrifice. Yeah. And so I feel I'm totally like grateful that that's not a rhythm, you know, yeah. when I go to shoot again, it'll be terrible. Right. <laughs> the rhythm of filmmaking is awful. Yeah, you're going to feel it big time. But you'll know it's a season. It's a season. Exactly. Well, I know we're already over time, so. Oh, you're fine. Whatever. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's all good. <laughs> Gavin. No, it's good. I'm, I'm, I'll take all the time. I'll take all the time. But yeah, just I think it's so cool that, that just to hear about that journey and, and these some of these reflections, because I feel like these questions that you're you've answered, you know, in your story and and obviously are still answering in your life, you know, trying, it's like a daily, it's a daily response to what you have in front of you. Totally. Um, but I feel like this idea of arriving is something that has plagued me for so long. This sense of like, as soon as I, as soon as I'm there, I'll no longer have this pain. I'll no longer have these problems. I'll no, and that's, that's the ends up being like the drive or the goal. But the more people I talk to, the clearer it is that there is no there. There is no like no. A, a end of the rainbow. It's it's how how we live our lives every day that was where we find fulfillment and purpose. When you have young kids and stuff start just, stuff just starts to get frayed. I used to spend so much time alone processing things and writing, and like all totally. that time has gone away. Even <laughs> yeah. even if I want, even if I get up at five in the morning to write, like inevitably my five year old's up at five thirty and he wants to he wants to do something. Wants you know, to party. Yeah, <laughs> it's just I guess that question of like, what are you committed to? Yeah, and and I think to that point, it like. um fatherhood to me was a hard transition yeah and i share this a lot with my friends and like when my first son was born i didn't have this immediate like oh i'm so in love like mm. i hear people say i was like this is crazy like this human like yeah a like i just watched him come out of my wife yeah <laughs> experience and yes. then it's like he's a human to me it was a falling in love experience but then it was also like fatherhood the first couple of years for me was really frustrating i was like why is this so hmm. revealing just the worst parts of who i am yes and i realized that it was in conflict with what i really wanted which is i wanted that time back i wanted to daydream again yeah i wanted to have my free time yeah i wanted to have all my hobbies that i had before he was born yeah i wanted to have the freedom my wife and i had to just pick up and do things and it's like Everything was being taken from me. Yeah. But it was only because I wanted something else. Mm. I wasn't able to consciously understand that. But then I, I was. It's like, I know now whenever I'm frustrated with my kids, it's because my thoughts or my 
wants are somewhere else. Yep. When they're with them, I can deal with the whining, the demands, because what I'm doing is I'm like, I'm, I'm shaping them in their character and that's what my focus is. So I'm okay yeah. to receive all their whining and loudness and desires to be with me. Yeah. Um, and it actually makes it a really beautiful experience. Right. It's only when like my focus is in contradiction to their goals, you know, yeah, it's, it's a very selfless, um, you have to fully commit. I don't think people accidentally become good fathers. Yeah. You are either intentional or you're not. And I made a commitment probably a couple of years ago where it's like, I'm going to be a great father. I don't know everything about that. So I started reading books, started reflecting on it, started meeting with people who I felt like were good fathers. Mm -hmm. It's like, just like I did with filmmaking, just like I did with anything, I didn't accidentally become a good writer. I woke up every day for 15 years when no one cared and I wrote. Right, right. I was a writer, even though no one called me a writer. I'm going to make this. This is the season of life I'm in. And it means, I thought at first it was going to mean, and I had anxiety around this, that I was going to have, there are filmmakers out there who don't have children, who can yeah. meditate all day yeah. <laughs> and draw storyboards and come up with ideas. But I have found, and I believe this, that, and I also, I believe in like a, the, the higher power of God, like, honoring intention intention into like like i'm like discipling my son Mm -hmm. but whether or not you believe in that i don't think it matters it matters to me but i don't think it matters for this discussion i think that what i found is again living as in an intentional direction toward my children and my wife gives me more creative gas in the tank it's interesting how it's linked yeah having a home where my marriage is growing and we're in the same direction towards our children and my fatherhood is growing. My boys are falling in love with me as I'm falling in love with them. And it's make it makes me more creative. Yeah. It, it, Cause I think my like soul, my deepest part of me is more at rest. And I think I meet, I don't think I do meet a lot of people in this industry who are not at rest. Yeah. Cause they're not at rest in their marriage or father and they're not at rest in their careers. Cause it's toxic. It's, it's, it's competitive and it's intense and I think people put all their hopes and dreams on this. Yeah. Um, but I was just telling a buddy of mine, I was hanging out the other day and we we're just like kind of, he's known me since I moved here to Ventura, which is like really right as we were before we made the cage. So he's like watched all this crazy stuff happen in my career. Yeah. And I said to him, I said, you know, man, like if all of my career stuff went away, but I was able to just basically make ends meet, like, for some reason, I always say working at Trader Joe's, it seems like the greatest place to work. <laughs> it does. I was like, functionally, I don't know after a while if I would notice a big difference. Mm. There'd be, certainly be a part of me that misses like the projects I get to work on, but I'd probably still write. But functionally, my day-to-day where I live is built around my family and my friends and my community and things yeah. I pour into as yeah. a reflection of my faith. Yeah, I don't like go to like, famous people's houses and like hobnob at events, like so yeah, yeah. few and far between that, you know, I think sometimes you can get seduced into worshiping the wrong things. Yeah. If you're not careful, you know, I do think that there's a certain amount of that that comes from not needing to validate yourself through all this, like your sense of self and worth doesn't come from 
your work necessarily or who's giving you approval or yeah it's hard though it's really hard i mean that's a, that to me is one of the hardest things that i i struggle and that's ultimately I've, i what happens for me like you're talking about that contradiction or the 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 tension between like being present with your kids and that goal of just connecting with them and with what they need versus my own agenda you know for myself the tension yeah. always is for me when when because i i mean just last night bedtime was a just a struggle i wanted my kids to go to bed <laughs> so bad so i could go do something else that was important yes. to me and for my own identity you know and yeah when it when though when i feel like my kids are are saying like right now you can't focus on the thing that you want to get your identity from you gotta mm -hmm. you gotta be here and present yeah you know that yeah like get your identity from me yeah right right <laughs> i'm curious to hear what you think about this because inevitably you're gonna fuck it up oh yeah in order to get back on track you have to forgive yourself totally and so how do you get the perspective to like kind of come back to remembering who you are and you're not your mistakes or your failures yeah i think uh journaling is definitely a part of that i have started as of late a more nightly rhythm before i go to bed it's called the examine actually it's e-x-a-m-e-n hmm. it's an old actually catholic tradition and it's essentially like how can i end my day reflecting on things that aren't my phone yeah who that's telling me to be yeah or what the what anxiety the news is telling me to have and i think giving yourself a lot of grace forgiving yourself a lot you know i mm -hmm. i think it's a maya angelou quote we have it hanging in our house so i should remember it but essentially <laughs> like people she says like people won't remember what you say mm. but they'll remember how you made them feel yeah yeah and i like to think and i hope that my wife and my boys particularly won't always remember exactly what i told them like i'm some magical quote that they have yeah but at the, they'll they will remember how their father made them feel yeah you know, and I think what you're talking about, like Russia trying to get bedtime, blah, blah, blah. It's like, um, that's been a hard one in the last six months. I remember my wife convicting me hard because she was like, you know, why are we rushing this? Yeah. Like, this is going to be gone. Like, what are we in a hurry to get to? A TV show, a glass of wine, yeah, a book, yeah. like, like our phones. Like, yeah. why are we trying to rush this time? Um, and it was, I was like, yeah, it's terrible when you think about it. Yeah. But it only comes in reflection. Like, yeah, she's also becoming a reflective person. You know how I think that again, irregardless of like a faith component, I think a reflection component is really helpful. Like, we don't live, we don't live in a world where reflection and rest is really honored. But it's the only time you can really go like, how am I doing as a father? What things could I do better? Or yeah. what could I change? Or you know, for me, I'm reading tons of books on fatherhood. Like, I'm gonna implement this thing that this father did and I'm steal it. Yeah. You know, like yep, yeah. I've stolen tons of things from other fathers <laughs> that I love. Uh, I don't need to be the inventor of any of them. Yeah. Speaking of like the fatherhood piece, it's just, um, part of me helps me remember not, I struggle a lot, not trying to find my identity in this work because mm -hmm. it's hard not to, yeah. to like constantly scaling yourself against other filmmakers. And I've watched it change. I used to, look at Vimeo, see who got the staff picks. I, I haven't been on Vimeo in three or four years, hmm. but now I read deadline or variety and I see other filmmakers getting jobs that I tried to get. Yeah. 
now I'm jealous of those people. Mm-hmm. My identity is, it's like the bar moved and I, and only through reflection did I realize I'm like, I'm actually, it's a, a moving target who I compare myself to. Yeah. At one point it was commercial guys. At one point it was Vimeo staff pick people. Now it's people who are getting feature film jobs that I wanted. Right. It's crazy. I'm like, where does it end? Yeah. And it's only through that reflection when, you know, I think about a friend of mine told me who's not in the industry, but was like watching the ascent of my career. And he said, just remember that your kids will never care about the movies you make. Right. <laughs> They'll think about it and might think it's cool once in a while. But like when you die, who you were as their father is the most important. And I reflect on that. Like I could work at Trader Joe's. Yes. And if I could be a better father working there, what do, adjustment do I need to make in my current career then? Yeah. Because that is the most important. And I've learned just as I was sharing before, it's not coming at a sacrifice to my work. There's just making my work better. Mm. You know? Yeah. It's kind of, I guess you ultimately, you do have to believe that you're going to be taken care of. You have to prioritize what needs to be prioritized and believe that the rest will be taken care of. Yeah. And if you're just creating a healthy home, whether it's with your wife, if you don't have kids or with your kids, like I'm being sent out into the world with a home base who's caring for me. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of energy both creatively and practically that I feel like comes out of that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Ricky, for spending the time with me this morning. Of course, dude. Really, really enjoyed your perspective and, um, yeah, lots of, lots to think about (laughs) for myself. <laughs> that's good. I don't know. I didn't know it's me. This is like a a fatherhood podcast. All of a sudden, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's all all connected. I think. I mean, these things are these issues. They just lay on top of each other, you know. And your perspective definitely brings some clarity for how I answer some of these questions myself. So good, man. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. I hopefully you're not too late for your next <laughs> meeting. But no, we actually don't have. Uh, oh, I should have made. Are you recording the video? Sorry. No, just, I'm not. I'm not. It's it's uh, oh, okay. it's just audio. Let's try to, I got these new lights. I'm trying to up my Zoom game. But. Oh, you have the uh, the ring light? Well, there's like a ring light I got sent for some other interview that they let me keep. and then But I got these windows that like the back, yeah. it's just like there's no window here. So it's just like right, right. my computer doesn't know what the hell to do with it. Yeah. Well, I have this <laughs> yeah. jank towel that's trying to dampen oh, that, some of this. That, just it's just for the slap back this room has so much slap in it for some reason like so much echo so this is just keeps that from uh (laughs) but there's windows behind me too oh yeah you'd probably have the same problem yeah maybe that's why i don't know you just need a towel all you need is a towel (laughs) yeah yeah, exactly (laughs) all right well thanks a lot ricky i uh definitely look forward to continue watching what you're up to and i appreciate it man hopefully sometime in the future we can connect again of course yeah cool all right thanks man You can learn more about what Ricky is up to and about Neighborhood Film Co. and their apprenticeship program working with the formerly incarcerated by going to their website, neighborhoodfilmco.com. The link to the website is in the episode description. And also, I just want to say it again, please do check out his film, Concrete Cowboy, on Netflix. It's really a great film, and I think you'll really enjoy it. So, okay, thank you for listening. I, from the bottom of my heart, I'm grateful that you're here. I hope you have a great week, and I will see you next week.